In Genesis chapter 37, we learn about the dysfunction of Jacob's family, and in particular, the alienation between Joseph and his brothers. And when they had the opportunity, his brothers sold Joseph into slavery. And then he came to Egypt where he worked for a high-level Egyptian official named Potiphar. And after Potiphar's wife framed him for rape, Joseph was thrown into jail where he met two fellow inmates who were themselves in jail after falling out of favor with Pharaoh. He successfully interpreted their dreams and and when the, the one surviving official came back to court, he forgot him initially, but he eventually informed Pharaoh, who had just had two dreams that portended the future of Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. And then Joseph, giving glory to God, told the king that his dreams indicated seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And then Pharaoh, in turn, placed Joseph in a position of authority to prepare for the coming disaster. And that's in a nutshell, the last five weeks or so that we've been walking through this. And we're we're going to pick up the story right where we're at that point in time after Joseph has been appointed to this great position of grand vizier. So Genesis chapter 41, verse 53 is where we're actually going to begin tonight. This is what it says. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to do, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. When when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. So the famine that has has struck the the known world becomes increasingly severe. And and now at this point in time, our story shifts back to uh, once again to the household of Jacob and his 11 sons. And the famine was obviously had now hit Canaan and the situation was getting very uh, bad. It was a dire situation. And Jacob, we know, if you remember his story and his life uh, before he now, he was a very shrewd and intelligent man. He was a, an administrator and he always had his ear to the ground to learn what was going on in the world around him. And word came to Joseph, maybe he spoke to some people traveling through on the way to Egypt, But somehow word came to him that grain was being sold in Egypt and he he spoke to his sons and his words to me are almost comical because he says to them, 
why are you guys standing around looking at each other? You do something. Go to Egypt. Buy some grain. That's the gist of his words. It's almost as if Jacob is chiding them on their lack of initiative or, or inactivity. But his words make it very clear for us that, that they must act or they're going to face starvation. So Jacob sent 10 of his sons down to Egypt, but he didn't send Benjamin. The text makes it clear that Jacob feared for his youngest child's safety. You know, and I don't, I, I can't help but wonder if Jacob had some sort of, some nagging doubts or suspicions that he could not dismiss about Joseph's fate. Surely he knew about the enmity between Joseph and his brothers, and all of a sudden his brothers show up and, with his coat and his bloody. Maybe he took it at their, them at their word, but maybe he still had these lingering doubts and said, I wonder, I wonder. And maybe because of that, he was afraid to send Benjamin. But, and as you can tell, it's very plain to see that Benjamin now has, now has taken the place of Joseph as the favored child. And Jacob just did not want to repeat the, the utter agony of his soul that he endured in the loss of Joseph. So the sons of Jacob came down to meet with the, the governor of Egypt to buy grain. The, the governor, or as we know, <clears throat> also in historically it was called, this position would be called the Grand Vizier. Uh, he was the one who sold the grain. <clears throat> so, of course, we're reminded very plainly to make sure we're all on the same page that Joseph was the governor. So Joseph, he met with those people who came down to purchase grain, uh, whether they were Egyptian or not, they came to him. And on this particular day, as he was conducting his business as usual, Joseph suddenly received a shock. Because there, standing before Joseph, were the ten brothers who betrayed him. The ones who had sold him into slavery. And this, they had sold him into slavery at least 22 years earlier at this point in time. We say that because we know that he was uh, 13 years as a slave and in, as a prisoner. Then you had seven years of, of, uh, of, the, of, of the plenty. You add that to it, we're up to 20 years. And now we're, uh, we're in the second year of the famine. So we're 21, 22 years, somewhere in there. So we know it's been th that long of a time. And, 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 and these same, same men who had so cruelly treated him with total and callous disregard now came before him and bowed down their faces to the ground. I want you to think about this moment from both perspectives. Think about this moment from the brothers' perspective. I mean, they've been ushered into the presence of the Grand Vizier of Egypt, this, the, this, the second most powerful man in the entire kingdom of Egypt. The surroundings must have seemed awesome to these old country boys from Canaan. They, they, as they stood before this man of immense authority and wealth who, who, who by controlling the world's food, he, he had in his hands the power of life and death. And we, we can see how overwhelmed they were because the initial response of the group was to bow down with their faces to the ground. So it wasn't just a, a polite little curtsy sort of thing. This was get on your knees and get your face to the ground. Get as low as possible to show deference to this man of power. Now keep in mind that they had no clue that the Egyptians sitting there, robed in royalty, was their long lost brother. And it's really, it's really not surprising that the brothers did not recognize Joseph. I mean, many years had passed. Uh, he was uh, a young man when he left, an adolescent, uh, possibly as young as 17, but uh, you know, somewhere in that, in that age range. 
And now he stood before them looking every bit the clean-shaven Egyptian aristocrat surrounded by guards. Um, and so, I mean, he, he wore the clothing of the Egyptians. Remember Pharaoh, one of the things he gave him was, was clean linen. That meant that he's having, wearing the clothing that the Egyptian aristocrats would wear. He wore the headdress of Egypt. He, he spoke to them in Egyptian through a translator. Not only that, but they, 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 you add to the fact that they could, there was no way, something about our expectations tends to filter what we're able to see sometimes. And so they could not in their wildest imagine, imagination even begin to come to the conclusion that their brother, the one that they had sold into slavery, could have in any way, in any universe, risen to such a power, a position of power and prominence. And so knowing that they'd sold him to slavery made it even that much harder for them to see Joseph. Even if they thought they'd recognized him, they would have said, huh, you know, that Egyptian guy kind of reminds me of Joseph. But they would never have come to the conclusion, hey, that is Joseph. In the eyes of Jacob's 10 sons, Joseph was... Only a, an intimidating and powerful official. Now, on the other hand, look at it from Joseph's perspective. He, he had spent years now in Egypt, as we know, 13 years as a slave and, thir- and in prison. Now he's been brought to power. He has spent seven years building all the granaries and doing the hard work of planning during all the years of plenty. And now there was the, the pressure of of having to dispense Egypt's stored grain with, with wisdom and equity. And every day he, he faced the people of Egypt, plus in addition to the people of Egypt, he faced a parade of people from foreign lands who were coming because they heard Egypt was selling grain. And, and that included this latest travel-worn, rather ragtag bunch of Hebrews that walks in. Now, since he instantly recognizes them and they... And he realized that they failed to recognize him. He, he enjoyed a classic opportunity, rarely allowed a person with his power, given their sordid past. As they stood there before him, he looked into their faces. He watched them carefully. They were bearded, uh, unlike the usually clean-shaven Egyptians. They wore the garb of, the, of, the, of Canaan, and they spoke the language of his people, the Hebrews. Joseph must have peered at them intently, studied them with his eyes, listened to them as they spoke, perhaps trying to even discern each one's identity. Oh, that's Simeon. Oh, that's, that's Reuben. Oh, that's Judah. I recognize that voice. He still talks the same way. There was no question. These men were his brothers. You know, I have often wondered whether perhaps Joseph had been looking for them all along. As, you know, uh, people from other countries poured into Egypt seeking food. I, I, I can't help but wonder if maybe he wondered if someday his own family might appear before him needing, needing food. Well, finally, there they stood. And the account tells us that he recognized them, but he... Some translations say he disguised himself, or some say he, that they didn't recognize him, but there's actually a play on words in, in the Hebrew here. It says that they were recognized, but he made himself unrecognizable, disguised himself. 
And, 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 and so since Joseph recognized them and realized that they did not recognize him, he, he had to think fast. And so, um, uh, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why he spoke to them harshly, was even disguising his voice, making sure they didn't recognize who he was. After the treatment that he had received at their hands, Joseph was not about to reveal his identity to them. Indeed, what he does is he embarks on a strategy that will test their character. He wants to know if they are the same self-seeking, envious brothers who sold him into slavery or whether they were now capable of putting others, including their father, before themselves. So Joseph's strategy begins with his harsh questioning of, of them as, he, as they walk in and they probably they may have heard him speak to other people in normal language. And all of a sudden they bow down before him and, and he's and he looks at them and says, where do you come from? And, and and the roughness of his voice must have disconcerted them a bit. It's like, whoa! I didn't expect that. After all, all they wanted was to engage in a simple transaction of buying some food and then quickly head back home. So they tell Joseph the truth, truth that they came from Canaan and they also tell him their purpose, which was to buy grain. And suddenly at that moment, as they're bowing before him and, and they're talking to him, Joseph experienced a divinely appointed deja vu. Everybody know what deja vu is? It's that feeling where it's like, whoa, I've been here before. And, and while he was standing there talking to his brothers, the dust of 20 years blew away from his memory and he remembered his own dreams from long ago. The Lord brought those dreams back to his memory. He recalled his brother's sheaves of wheat bowing before his sheaf. He recalled the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. How tempting it must have been to reveal himself at that moment and to remind them of those dreams, those dreams for which they had mocked him and they had hated him. How self-satisfying it would have been to be able to look at them at that moment and say, hey, I'm Joseph. Remember my dreams? Told you so. I know that would have been a temptation for me, for sure. Instead, Joseph decided to buy a little time. It's hard to imagine the swirling mixture of emotions that affected Joseph at that moment. He, he watched them bow, and in, in that moment, a boyhood dream became a reality, yet not quite. Every detail of that dream would have been indelibly etched on his memory. And in that dream, he had seen 11 stars bow down, but now he only saw 10 men bowing in front of him. Where was his brother Benjamin? How was he to deal with these men who had caused him so much pain and suffering? Had they done something to Benjamin? There were so many questions he didn't know the answer to. Once they had been in a position of power over him, and now the situation was reversed. And he had power over them. Was there a right action for him to take? Let's read on, verse 9. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. That just means you come to see where we're unfortified, to see where you can attack the country. Uh, and they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. By the way, the reason they said we're sons of one man is because they're trying to let them know, hey, we're just here. We're representatives of one family. We're not a group of people from another nation. We're not like a gang of guys come in to spy out the land. We're just people from one, one family. He said, we're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Of course, 
that's what you'd expect to say if you, if you were a spy, but that's neither here nor there. Verse 12, he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Speaking of Joseph. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spots. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So Joseph knows that his brothers have told him the truth about where they have come from and why they have come to Egypt. But he accuses them of being spies, which is a very, very serious accusation. I mean, spying at any stage of history has always been a serious offense. And these men were, were surely trembling as they wondered what this powerful man was going to do to them. Think about it. They were vulnerable visitors in a foreign country with a different language and different customs. And in that context, to be accused of spying was an extremely frightening experience. And the men were quick to protest and reply, No, my Lord, you, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're, we're all honest men. Your servants have never been spies. So they, they protest that, no, they're not spies. We're, we're, but they said, we are all, we're, we're honest men who have never been spies. Now, think about this. It is true that they've never been spies. But honest men? That, that's a whole different matter. Because we know that for years now, for over two decades, they have maintained a lie with their father that Joseph was killed by a wild animal, that Joseph was dead. Well, in spite of their protests, Joseph keeps pressing the case that they had come to see where the land was unprotected so they could attack the land. And, 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 and we do know historically that Egyptians had disdain and they had fear of the Asiatics to their north and to their east. So such a charge would not be out of the question during a period of Egyptian weakness. And, and of course, during a famine, that would be when a nation would be at its weakest. And so it would not be un, un, unthinkable to, to make this charge. And the continued accusations lead the brothers to tell more specifics about their family background. And they inform Joseph that they're sons of one man, of course, that's Jacob, and, and that they're 10 of 12 brothers, and one of them was still at home, that was Benjamin, and one is no more. They don't even know they're speaking about the one. Now, of course, they did not know whether Joseph was still alive or not. They gave that impression, but the public story was that he'd been killed by a wild animal, so they present Joseph as, as dead. And it's how ironic that Joseph is there saying, <laughs> thinking to himself, no more, huh? <laughs> you got a surprise coming, fellas. <laughs> Joseph knew how his brothers had treated him. Think about this. And, and he knew that with him out of the picture that Benjamin was the last son of the beloved Rachel. And he can only imagine how they may have been treating his little brother Benjamin. Is he still alive? Have they killed him in another fit of jealousy? What have they done to him? How is, you know, how is he? And so now they have revealed, they have said that Benjamin is there. He's with his father, Jacob. 
that he's alive. They revealed that there's a brother still at home. And Joseph now had the means to test them, to test their character. So Joseph ramped up the pressure even more. He said to them in verses 14 through 17, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your word may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So Joseph incarcerates all 10 of these of his brothers to give them time to think about their situation. He wants them to stew a bit. He's going to apply some pressure here. Uh, These men who had callously imprisoned Joseph in an empty water cistern in the desert now found themselves in prison. And their thoughts while while they were there deeply, deeply troubled them. Their father thought Joseph was dead. This is what they would have been thinking. Their father is thinking Joseph is dead. And he had kept Benjamin at home. And let the other 10 sons go to Egypt. And the reason he didn't let Benjamin go was because he was afraid something would happen to him. So what would Jacob, their father, do if only one of these brothers were allowed to return? And then he went home and demanded to take Benjamin away so that so that if he took him, then Jacob ran the risk of losing all 12 of his sons. Jacob is never going to let Benjamin go under those kind of circumstances. They know that. And and if he didn't do that, if he didn't do what what the the governor of Egypt uh, was was demanding of them, then the future of all nine men that that would be left in Egypt in prison would be an unthinkable nightmare. Because throughout history, espionage has been regarded as a traitorous offense, often punishable with torture and with death. These men, in their minds, they look at their situation and they realize that they are in deadly trouble. Joseph was applying pressure to these men to test them, to, to see if their words were true, to see what kind of character they had, to see if there was any level of repentance inside of them. And he let them stew for three days, which really is a very short time compared with the years that Joseph had spent in prison because of their hatred for him. But then he brought them out and he made a conciliatory gesture. Verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God, which that's a very interesting statement there, because would they be thinking, wait a minute, does he know the God of Israel? Does he know the God of Jacob? Does he know the God we serve? Um, I, I really, it's interesting because as I read the story, it's, it seems like Joseph keeps dropping little hints and little clues every so often that, that if, if they had been paying attention, if their minds had been open, they might have realized earlier who he was. And I think this is another one of those, one of those hints because they'd be like, how does he know anything about the Hebrew God? So do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are, where you are in, in custody And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So now, not all, not nine, with one going, but one will will stay. So instead of all of them, uh, uh, all all but one staying Uh, and that one returning now, only one will stay, 
and the other nine will return to, to the, their father uh, with, the, with the plan of that, that one was going to be in custody until the others re- returned with Benjamin with them. So now, as we see this, I don't, I don't know that this is necessarily a change of mind for Joseph. It's possible that, that he had time in those three days to think it through and, and because he obviously wanted to see his brother Benjamin. He wanted to make sure he was okay. Um, and so he, he, he may have been a change of mind, but, but whatever it is, sometime now he has come up with this plan and he's decided to carefully execute this plan. Uh, and Joseph really wanted to see the current and true nature of, of his brothers. He wanted to see if they're the still, still the same men who sold him as a slave over 22 years earlier. He wanted to know if there had been a change of heart, if they were trustworthy. He wanted to know if they have come to regret their actions. And, uh, and, and, and as he thought about it, Joseph probably came to the conclusion, he knew that his father would not allow all of his sons to remain in custody in Egypt and then send Benjamin, his last remaining child from Rachel, down to where his other sons were being held. Uh, and so he probably thought to himself, well, there's, that's probably not going to happen. I need to do this a different way. And he came and this was all part of his plan. But he also would have been aware he, he, wa- he doesn't want anybody in his family to starve. And it would have been very difficult for one person to take enough grain back to feed what at that time would have been a family of about 70 with all of their livestock. Uh, and so uh, it, it would seem logical that Joseph's plan was to detain one. Now, whether it was his plan all along and he changed it, I don't know. But the plan eventually came about that, that it, the logical thing was to detain one and send the others home with the instruction that when they return, Benjamin must accompany them. And Joseph wanted to see his little brother Benjamin. But he also wanted to determine that the brothers were telling the truth because they could be lying that Benjamin was even alive and well. He doesn't know. He probably also wanted to see if he brought, if they brought back Benjamin, he probably wanted to see how his brothers were treating Benjamin without them knowing that, that he was Joseph. Joseph knew that if he could see Benjamin and see how he, they, were, they were treating him, that much would be explained in the treatment of, of, of Benjamin by these brothers. Now, it's here at this point in time, after this announcement, that the, the story takes an interesting turn because we would think that the brothers would be greatly relieved that they'd been released and you know that almost all of them are going to be allowed to return home as quickly and quietly as possible. However, what's been happening in these three days, their consciences, consciences have been active over the preceding days, and they started to talk among themselves in their own language, completely unaware that Joseph could understand every word they're saying. This is what they said in verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. All right, you remember when they threw him in the pit. What does it say? They threw him in there and then they sat down and had a meal. They're sitting there enjoying dinner while their brother is screaming and crying and begging for them to let let him go. They still hear the voice. They still have that. They're carrying that in their minds. They said that that is why this distress has come upon us. So you see there it says, uh, we saw the distress of his soul 
And now this distress has come upon us. The whole idea is there that somehow the distress of Joseph has now come to rest upon them. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you to, did I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from among them and bound them before their eyes. So under the pressure of the situation, their, their long buried guilt broke the surface and they admitted, admitted, excuse me, admitted it openly among themselves as they recalled Joseph's distress when he had begged them to free them, free him from the cisterns years, years and years and years before. And as Joseph listened, he detected the first signs of honesty and regret and repentance in his brothers when they said, in truth, we are guilty. You know, circumstances can force guilt to the surface in any of us. We, we know that Joseph's, act, Joseph's actions do that to his brothers, but one cannot help but think that there are times when God does the same thing to us. In his providential care, he so arranges our circumstances that we are forced to face things that we have suppressed or tried to forget that we need to deal with in order to grow as believers. I believe that very often when we are walking in sin, when we're dealing with, we're refusing to deal with something in our lives, that God will allow circumstances to come into our lives with the goal of, excuse me, with the goal of crowding us back to him. But, uh, you know, when you have done wrong, to someone and you haven't gone through the necessary process to make things right with them, to make things right with God, when you haven't fully dealt with your transgressions, you become the victim of the very distress that you put that person through. And Joseph's brother's crime was now more than two decades old, but they still carried the distress of it. They could still hear his cries for help, his begging, his pleading, Time does not erase distress. We all have evidence of that in our own, own lives. We know from experience the inescapable reminders of our guilt when we are trying to ignore sin in our lives and not deal with it. The, the emotional entanglements brought about by the consequences of our own sin can be so devastating, it can weigh on us in such a great way that we can even become physically sick as a result, which is precisely what happened with David following his adultery with Bathsheba and his murderous plot to have Uriah, her husband, killed. You remember his heartsick admission in Psalm 32? He said, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Here are these brothers, 22 years at least, probably even a little long, longer than that. They were plagued with guilt. And now they felt the full weight of the responsibility of their actions towards Joseph, and they regretted their actions deeply. See, these men, early on, you might think they're sociopaths. They're, they're not sociopaths. They, they all had a conscience, and their consciences, consciences accused them day and night for years and years and years of the terrible thing that they had done. Their guilt was just eating them alive. The ten brothers now felt that justice was being served on them, that God was making sure that they paid for what they had done. 
And Reuben spoke up and blamed them specifically for not listening to him in sparing the boy. And, he, you know, when he talks about that, think about this. Joseph would not have known that information at this point in time. Namely, he would not have known that Reuben had desired to save his life and return him to his father because he wasn't there when they were plotting to kill him. And Reuben said, no, let's just throw him in a pit. And we're told that later he was going to come and get him out and take him back to his father. Joseph wouldn't have known that. Joseph wouldn't have known that he played no part in, in, uh, in his, uh, the selling him to the Midianites as a slave. And, and now, now, I want to say that, that is not to say that Reuben was guiltless, that he bears no guilt in this, because he had, in fact, covered up the crime with his brothers for more than two decades. He had lied to his father about it for more than two decades. He was what we would call in our modern legal language an accessory after the fact. He was just as guilty as they were because he, he didn't even, I mean, he made no effort to say, let's go get him back. We can't do this. The only reason he lied for two decades was because if you go back and read it, you'll remember we mentioned this a few weeks ago was because he was afraid what his dad would think if he was gone. He was going to, he was going to bear the brunt of it. It was all about Reuben. So he's not guiltless, but that is, you know, that is something to think about when Joseph learned that, because perhaps that's why he chose Simeon to stay behind. Because Reuben was the oldest. He would have been the logical choice to be the one to stay behind. But Joseph specifically chose Simeon. He knows who he is. He knows who Reuben is. And so maybe that's why he was left behind in prison. And I, I, I wonder what Joseph felt when he heard his brother's words, when he heard them admit their guilt over what they had done. Understanding Everything they said and realizing that they were that these things were positive indicators of contrition and repentance. And in response to that, Joseph had he was so overcome that he had to leave the room and weep. What tears of relief and joy. This is the first time we read of Joseph weeping and it won't be the last. Now, I'm sure that he wept many times before that, but this is the first time it's recorded. But it reveals something, the fact that he wept in that moment reveals something to us about his heart. Because that is not the reaction of a cruel, vindictive man who's toying with his brothers and reveling in their pain as he seeks to get the maximum revenge for what they had done to him. You know, because with everything that's going on, if you didn't know his heart, you would think, you would look at him and say, He's just toying with them. He's really going to get them good. He's really playing this up. He's going to milk this for all the pain he can get out of them. But no, the fact that he wept tells us, no, that's not his heart. And the weeping was not a sign of weakness either. Because weeping is not a sign of weakness. It's an indicator of a tender heart. This is much more the attitude of a man who wanted to forgive and wanted to be reconciled to his brothers. He, he wanted to tell them who he was, but he couldn't do it yet. Why not? Why couldn't he? Because Joseph knew that genuine forgiveness and reconciliation involve repentance. So at this point in the story of Joseph, we come to the heart of a very sensitive topic that there is considerable disagreement and and sometimes even confusion both among believers and public at large and that is when we talk about forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance has to be put in the mix there it, it was c.s lewis who observed everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive 
Now, I want to take a few minutes to talk about forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation. These are all very much interrelated ideas, but I think that we sometimes get confused by them. At times, we, re we refer to one when we really uh, actually ought to be talking about another one. Uh, and this will become maybe a little bit more clear uh, because we may be, we may, uh, we may talk about reconciliation when really we mean forgiveness, or we may talk about forgiveness when really we're talking about reconciliation. And then repentance plays in with all this stuff. So I want to talk about that. First, I want to deal with forgiveness. Forgiveness, I believe, deals with the inner life of the injured party. It's an, it's an inward letting go. Whereas reconciliation deals with the outward relation of the injured party to the one who committed the offense. You see that? So forgiveness is something that happens inside of me. Reconciliation is something that takes place outwardly between us. You see this? So in Mark eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. So in that setting, the, the person who has injured you is not necessarily present, so it cannot be a question of publicly letting the matter go and making a public statement and saying, I forgive this person publicly. Christ here is addressing the danger that our lives will be damaged by harboring resentment and an unforgiving spirit. He's talking about what takes place inside of us. Forgiveness is an act of canceling a debt inwardly because we, i mean forgiveness even the the word that's used in the in the bible it, it's actually has a, a root in the financial world because when if you have a debt and the bank is going to wipe out that debt what is that called it's called forgiveness it's debt forgiveness and that's the whole idea behind it is that when somebody does something wrong to me if somebody sins against me then to forgive is to be able to look at them and say, you don't owe me anything for that. You don't owe me an apology. You don't owe me anything. That's what forgiveness is. It's forgiving the debt inwardly. And the reason we do that is so that that unforgiveness won't destroy me as the, uh, as the offended person. Now, I want, you to say, I want you to understand this. It's easy to talk about these things, but that, may, that sometimes is extremely, extremely difficult, especially for people who have experienced deep cruelty and abuse and hurt. Yet, yet we have to remember that the one who commands us to do this is the Lord himself, who hanging from the cross said, Father, forgive them. So he's not asking you to do something that, that, that is impossible. He's asking you to do something that he, he, he himself has, has done in his life. Forgiveness is necessary for your own spiritual, emotional, and physical health, but just because it's necessary doesn't mean it's easy. In fact, without Christ's help, in many cases, without his help, it's impossible. Just not in us as human beings. And that truth is graphically illustrated by Corey Ten Boom's account of being faced with a former prison guard from a Nazi concentration camp. I'm going to read it to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but if you just hang with me, uh, it's so powerful. Uh, and I think probably everybody here knows who Corrie Ten Boom is, but she was, uh, uh, she was from Holland and her family uh, hid Jews during World War II. They got caught and she and her family were put in concentration camp. In that camp, 
Um, much of her family died, including her sister Betsy. She watched her sister Betsy waste away and die in the prison camp uh, with not just starvation and privation, but also with abuse, physical abuse. This is what she, she wrote. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling, filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? I stood there. I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? Could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive their, men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I, I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to, their outs, to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. 
And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way, for every time I go to Him, He teaches me something else. I recall the time some 15 years ago when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me, you would have thought that having forgiven the Nazi guard, this would have been child's play. It wasn't. For weeks, I seethed inside. But at last, I asked God again to work His miracle in me, and again it happened. First the cold-blooded decision, then the flood of joy and peace. I had forgiven my friends. I was restored to my father then why was I suddenly awake in the middle of the night, hashing over the whole affair again? My friends, I thought, people I loved. If, if it had been strangers, I wouldn't have minded so. I sat up and switched on the light. Father, I thought it was all forgiven. Please help me do it. But the next night I woke up again. They talked so sweetly too, never a hint of what they were planning. Father, I cried in alarm, help me. His help came in the form of a kindly Lutheran pastor to whom I confessed my failure after two sleepless weeks. Up in that tower, he said, nodding out the window, is a bell which is rung by pulling on a rope. But you know what? After the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong, slower and slower until there's a final dong and it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we mustn't be surprised if old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. They're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowly slowing down. And so it proved to be. There were a few more midnight reverberations, a couple of dings when the subject came up in my conversation, but the force, which was my willingness in the matter, had gone out of them. They became less and less often, and at last stopped altogether. And so I discovered another secret of forgiveness, that we can trust God not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. That is so powerful. Forgiving is when we stop pulling the rope. We let go of the rope and say, I'm not going to keep this thing going in my heart anymore. I cancel the debt internally. That is so powerful and deeply moving. And it shows us what a struggle it can be at times to offer forgiveness. However, with Christ's help, we can forgive and we can learn to let that offense go inwardly. But that leads us to the other side of the coin. And that's the issues of repentance and reconciliation. 
Many, many people confuse the inward act of forgiveness with the outward act of reconciliation. This is where we get ourselves in trouble because we make the inward decision to forgive. Then we, I mean, so many times I've seen people do this. Then they go to the person they, for, they have forgiven and just say, I just want you to know I've forgiven you. Well, we're going to talk about why that can cause issues. Uh, the, the letting go of the offense inwardly is not the same thing as, as looking at somebody verbally and saying, I forgive you out loud. If, you, if you've been wounded and I'm the one who has to do the, for, excuse me, if I've been wounded and I'm the one that has to do the forgiving, I may well have to work hard at getting my heart right before the Lord and letting go, letting go of something inwardly so that it doesn't fester inside of me and poison me. However, that's not the same thing as an active pardon or remission of the guilt of the offender, nor is it the same thing as my relationship with them being reestablished. Because that, according to Scripture, requires repentance on their part. Many people make the mistake of forgiving a person, as I said, that has offended them, and then they immediately go to them and they to that person and they proclaim to them, I just want you to know, I have forgiven you. But here's the thing. If they're not repentant, that forgiveness means nothing to them. Do you see that? If they're not repentant, they don't care. In fact, if you go to them and say that and they're not repentant, they're now suddenly offended. They're mad at you. Who are you to think that you have the right to forgive me? I don't need forgiveness from you. And, and then he gets into this whole nasty thing. And they're like, who, who do you think you are? You must think you're up above me somewhere that you can just grant me forgiveness. And, and, we, and so we get into an issue there because there's no repentance. Because you've confused forgiveness with reconciliation. Forgiveness happens inside. Reconciliation happens outside. But reconciliation can only happen when there's repentance. Offering verbal or public forgiveness to an unrepentant person does, tends to do nothing but alienate them further from you. It does not bring about reconciliation. Reconciliation, as I said, requires both forgiveness and repentance. It requires forgiveness on my part and repentance on their part. That's how the relationship is healed. Now, my forgiveness is not dependent on their repentance. But my forgiveness is not for them. Forgiveness is when I spring open a trap and discover that I'm the one who's been set free. Forgiveness is not for them. But repentance is. If, if the relationship's going to be reconciled, my forgiveness cannot, on its, on its own, one-sided forgiveness cannot reconcile a relationship. The other person has to take ownership and responsibility to be able to bring healing in the relationship. Um, they, they, they receive no benefit from the forgiveness unless he or she repents. Um, if, if a person has abused you, you, you can make the choice to forgive and you can let go of the debt that they owe you inwardly. But until they come to a place of true repentance, there's no reason to put yourself back in the place of abuse. You see, because now you're trying to reconcile without any repentance. This is why, you know, a woman uh, who, who's estranged from her husband because of, of domestic abuse at home. Uh, this, is, this is why I feel perfectly confident as a pastor, as a believer in the Bible, telling them, no, you don't have to go back in that home. Because, because even though you have to forgive them, 
It doesn't mean that you go back in the home because until they repent, they can't, you can't be reconciled. It, 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 you know, for another example, a man who steals from you, you may forgive them inwardly, but that doesn't mean you're going to put him in charge of your finances. Right? Especially if they're not repentant. You know, if they're like, oh, thanks for the forgiveness. I don't, you know, didn't bother me, but uh, thanks anyway. You know, you're not going to do that. And, and even after he repents, and here's the thing we often forget, even after they repent and the reconciliation begins, it's still going to take some time to go through the process of earning trust again. You know, because trust is not given, trust is earned. And so, so even when there's true repentance, that re reconciliation is a beginning point, not the ending. Does this make sense to anybody? Well, with all of that said, this is what we see Joseph doing. One-sided forgiveness cannot repair or restore a relationship as long as, the, as, as true repentance and a full confession are lacking on the part of the offender. Joseph had forgiven his brothers years before. That's why he's able to respond without the emotion of attack, attack, attack. He had forgiven his brothers years before. He is, by this time, he is fully come to grips with the reality that his brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and that God put him in that place to save all these people and to save his family. And, and he sees God's hand in this and he has forgiven his brothers years before, but there has not yet been any reconciliation. He could offer forgiveness, but they would never be reconciled as brothers if they still, if they were still the same self-serving jealous lot. We have seen that the, that the process of bringing the brothers to repentance has already begun and that they admit their guilt to one another, not knowing that Joseph could understand everything that they were saying. And it was this moment that precipitated Joseph's weeping because he now knew that there is some possibility that he might be able to restore a relationship with his brothers. But the time was not yet right for, the, for that relationship because their character required testing. Trust had to be earned again. He had to see that they were not the same men. He had to see that they were repentant before they could ever be reconciled. He had to test their character. He had to determine the genuous, genuineness of their repentance. So, so he had Simon bound before them as a hostage and nine brothers started out on a journey to return to the homeland and to their father. I'm running out of time, but I need to finish just the end of this chapter. You hang in with me? Let, all right, we'll do, we'll do my thing the other, from a few weeks ago. How many, you, will you give me five more minutes? Okay, five, 10, 15, okay, we're good. Okay, all right, Gen, chapter 42, verse 25. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them as they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, to the land of Canaan, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us 
to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we're honest men. We have never been spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of, of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land said to us, by this, I shall know that you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine to your, of your households and go to your way, uh, go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you're not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks behind, uh, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Right there, it makes me begin again, think that somehow he, he suspects that they are the ones that did something to Joseph. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Just see, see the self-pity there with Jacob, the self-centeredness there. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make and you would bring, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol or to the grave. All right, so even as Joseph went about testing his brothers, he still showed them grace. The money that they had brought to pay for the grain, he returned to them. And there's no reason to think that there was any, this was anything other than an act of kindness on Joseph's part. But Joseph's act of kindness had unintended consequences with his brothers who were traveling home. You know, it's hard to imagine the mood among the group of men as they left for home, knowing that they would have to tell Jacob they're going to go home and see their dad. And they're going to have to tell him, hey, we had to leave Simeon behind. He's in jail. He, he's in prison in Egypt. And, and then to add to that, and by the way, also the governor of Egypt has insisted that we go back with Benjamin in order for matters to be sorted out. So, so for Simeon, Simeon to get out of prison, we got to go back with Jim, Benjamin. And they're thinking this all the way. And they, and they, they, they halted for the night one, one night and one of them noticed when he went to get feed for his donkey, he noticed that his money was back in the mouth of a sack. And when he told them this, their hearts sank and they began to tremble. And it's very telling. You can see the conviction of the Holy Spirit and God working their life because what was their reaction? It wasn't who did this. It is what is this that God has done to us? Again, they're, they're thinking, this is the judgment of God because of our evil actions. Their response is fear. Their guilty consciences were speaking against them and accusing him. They fear that it's the judgment of God. Certainly they knew they certainly deserved God's punishment, uh, but, but perhaps they, they finally felt that, hey, the chickens have finally come home to roost. And maybe they even feared in, you know, in their heart that this was a deliberate act used as a, to be used as a pretext for some plot against them. But anyway, these weary travelers arrive home and they shared it with their father, Jacob, all that had transpired. They, they explained how the governor of Egypt had been harsh and accusatory. They recounted how they had in their defense told the Egyptian ruler that they were honest men from a family of 12 sons and that one was dead and another, the youngest, was with his father. Then they, then they told Jacob how this man in Egypt had demanded that they bring Benjamin back down to Egypt to prove their innocence to, because you know, he, Joseph is, the logic he's using is like, okay, if you really have a younger brother and you're 12, you bring him back and then I'll believe you. It really wouldn't have proved anything. But, but, uh, uh, but at, this, at this point, 
after telling Jacob all these stories, this is the moment where they unload and, ins and inspect all their sacks of grain that they have. And lo and behold, they discover that all of them have their silver. And this realization panics both brothers and the father. Because in their mind, they're thinking, we're going to be accused of stealing this. We didn't do it, but that's what the accusation is going to be. And Joseph, in response, blames them for the loss of Joseph and now the loss of Simeon and the potential loss of Benjamin. And he, he feels like he's losing his family one by one. And as I kind of brought it to your attention, Jacob is full of self-pity, which is shown through exaggeration. Okay, yes, Joseph was no more, no more. So far as Jacob knew, he was dead. That's true. But you know what? He said Simeon was gone, but Simeon's still alive. He's still there. He can be rescued. And, and no one had said anything about wanting to take Benjamin away, Benjamin away in any absolute or permanent sense. And Jacob thinks that everything is directed against him. Uh, Self-pity is really, it's really uh, rooted in self-centeredness. But self-pity, especially in those as we get older, can so easily turn into bitterness or worse. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I love C.S. Lewis writings. But he said, the moment you have a self at all, there is a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the sender, wanting to be God. In fact, that was the sin of Satan. And that was the sin he taught the human race. You know, one of the best antidotes for self-pity, when, when we feel it creeping up on us, have you ever been there where you start, where you realize, man, I'm having to throw myself a pity party here. Anybody ever had that realization? I've done that many times where it creeps up on you, sneaks up on you. But one of the best antidotes for that is to remember the old, old hymn. Anybody remember the song, Count Your Blessings? Name them one by one. When you start going through your life and saying, what has God given me? How has God blessed me? You begin to realize, I can't even name all of the blessings that he has given me. And so it, your heart then uh, makes it easy. You, you, you turn to him in thankfulness. And, and when you begin to count your blessings and it, and, and, uh, and it gives us the reason to be thankful. And here's what I know. Self-pity cannot easily coexist with gratitude especially gratitude to, toward God. In, in response to Jacob, Reuben, the eldest son, he made really an extraordinarily foolish and, and uh, just suggestion. Reuben offers his two sons as hostages for Benjamin, saying that Jacob could have them killed if he does not bring Benjamin safely back for, from Egypt. Now this is, th listen, this is an absolutely nonsensical idea. This is the dumbest idea anybody has come up with, well, maybe not ever, but it's right up there, okay? Because in effect, here's what he's telling Jacob. He's saying, if I don't return back with Benjamin safely, your son, then in response, you can kill two of your grandchildren. That's what he's saying to him, right? What kind of deal is that? And even if, even if Jacob didn't like his grandkids, he would not be interested in lessening his progeny because that was the future of the family. So Jacob quickly refuses that. He just ignores him. He's just like, get out of here, Reuben. But not only is Reuben's plan deeply flawed, but there 
already good reasons why Jacob would not trust him. After all, remember, I mentioned this before, we didn't get really get into it, but uh, it was his eldest son, Reuben, who had slept with Jacob's concubines. In addition, as the eldest, he would have been the one held most responsible for Joseph when he was lost. Furthermore, Benjamin occupies a special place among the remaining brothers. And so Jacob says to him, no, I'm not going to send my son with you down to Egypt because he's the last one. How it must have cut the other brothers to the heart to hear Jacob say, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. Can you imagine these nine guys saying, eh, I guess we're chopped liver. I mean, I thought we were your sons, Jacob. Jacob was so fearful of losing Benjamin, the remaining son of his beloved Rachel, that he was willing to sacrifice Simeon. That's what it boils down to. He said, I'm not sending Jacob. Simeon's already gone. He's already gone. Forget him. We're not going to get him. And in that moment, the family has reached an impasse. They, they could not go back to Egypt with any hope of Simeon being released unless Benjamin was with them. The only hope they had was that the famine would end before they needed to get more grain. Jace, Jacob decisively blocked Benjamin going, and, and he was clearly prepared for the family to just go on as usual without Simeon. Just pretend he's gone. He's dead. Just put him out of your mind. Let's go on. We're just going to live our life. And in this instance, the man full of self-pity did what such people often do, shut out reality by sticking his head firmly in the sand. Let's just ignore it. Let's pretend nothing's going on. Let's pretend, let's just ignore the fact that Simeon's in prison. Let's ignore the fact that all these things have happened. Let's just go on and pretend like it didn't happen. And that was the case in Jacob, with Jacob, at least until a little bit later on. God pulls his head back out of the sand. We'll get to that another week. But why don't you bow your head? Let's pray. Father, as we come into your presence, we just thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that there's been something that has been said tonight that is helpful, that helps us to grow. Lord, if there's any one of us that are dealing with forgiveness issues or reconciliation issues, let that become much more clear in our minds, in our hearts, so that we don't get confused and we don't muddy the waters by, by confusing the two. But God, I pray that you would help us to forgive. And I pray that you would bring reconciliation through repentance to people, to us and relationships that have been broken because of some offense or another. And God, I pray that you'd help us to do that and move forward the way jo Joseph did. And Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name, you'd help us not to get caught up in self-pity like Jacob. Lord, we all have bad things happen. We all have those seasons in life when everything goes wrong. But God, help us not to begin to turn inwardly and, and gaze at our own navel and say, oh, it's all about me. This is, this is what's happened to me. But God, instead, help us to count our blessings. Help us to enumerate the many, many ways which you have blessed us. And God, that, in, that would stir gratitude in our heart so that we would not wallow in self-pity, but we'd give glory to our God. And we give you praise for all of it. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.